Well, Jay, you and I talk a lot about books we like to read, uh, things about the industry, and we've always been sort of book nerds when it comes to learning about the business and, and historical things and all kinds of stuff. And we talk about our desert island books, books that we recommend that everybody should have on their shelf if you're in the, working in this space. And we have a new one. It's called Key Changes. It's with our friends that we're about to interview. And uh, here we are doing another special episode. Yeah, this is a good one. You know, the the book was written by Howie Singer and Bill Rosenblatt, who we're going to talk to. And as you mentioned, it's called Key Changes, the 10 times technology transformed the music industry. And it's such a great book. And I've got mine all highlighted and dog-eared. And we we uh, had such a great conversation with those two. Uh, we, we talked for a while before we hit record. And they're the types of guys that we could literally talk to for hours and hours. They're so knowledgeable and they're just nice people. Um, we highly recommend the book, but what an incredible conversation. Stand by for transmission. This is London Calling. Wake up! The revolution is at hand! Your morning coffee is on the air. Your morning coffee, the weekly music news for the new music business. It's the highly curated, agitated, advocated, moderated, and liberated digital music information that you need to know. We are your digital music authority. And now, from our studios in Hollywood, California, here's your hosts, Jay Gilbert and Mike Etchart. Howie, Bill, thanks so much for joining us. It's it's such a pleasure. Um, we've been talking about your book. Um, I rarely read a book twice, and this one I've got highlighted and dog-eared, and it's it's just the best book on the music industry. Um, before we sort of jump into the book, let's let's start with each of you. Uh, give our listeners a little bit of a, a background because both of you are very experienced. You've been around a while, Howie. Let's start with you. Let's let's talk about your uh, your background a little bit. Sure. So I'm um, sitting in my house in New Jersey about eight miles from Bell Labs in Homedale, which is where I started my career, having nothing whatsoever to do with music. Um, but I was there in the mid nineties um, when, uh, you know, M the MP3 codec was being developed. AT&T was one of the places where uh, work was done. Carl Heinz Brandenburg came after getting his doctorate to Bell Labs to work with JJ Johnston and, um, there was another guy who had just joined AT&T at that point named Larry Miller, who Bill and I both work for at NYU. We both teach in the data, uh, data analysis and the music business program there. Larry runs the program. And uh, Larry and I uh, looked at that technology as well as some of the security technology that Bell Labs had and said, we can 
build a business of secure distribution of music over the internet. And so we had a startup. That's really how I got in the music business. That startup ultimately failed. We were like Liquid Audio and some others too early to the market in part, and this gets to the theme of the book, some of the technologies to make that business of downloading music successful, like high-speed networks, mm. were not there yet. Um, it took 15 minutes, 12 minutes to download a single song at that time. That was quicker than driving to a record store, which, by the way, was in our pitch deck, but it wasn't quick enough to satisfy consumers. And it was only later, and we'll get to it, when high-speed networks, particularly on university campuses, became a thing that file sharing and downloading of, of music files became a thing. Um, ultimately, that business at AT&T was supposed to spin out. It didn't. And, you know, there were lots of machinations we don't have to go through to keep it shorter. But in 2002, Warner Music was searching for a chief technologist, not to run IT, but to sort of be their skunk works person for new tech related to e-commerce, related to file sharing, related to unauthorized distribution, related to what we could do legitimately. And um, I was lucky enough to get that job at Warner and I was there for 15 years. So I was part of the strategy team, the technologists there doing the deals with whether it was Spotify or YouTube or SoundCloud, as well as evaluating the new technologies that, that came along. And since leaving there, I've been consulting and I've been teaching at NYU, as I said, and spent two years working with Bill writing key changes. <laughs> Great, Bill. Tell us about your uh, your path. Sure. So I grew up um, the son of two musicians, one professional. He was um, in the oboe section of the Philadelphia Orchestra, played English horn and oboe. And, uh, and then my mother... What, who mostly stayed at home, but was a music teacher. She was a piano prodigy, uh, a German Jew who escaped the Nazis just before World War II. Uh, and in fact, I still, in, in the next room, and I use it as a prop sometimes, I have a, um, a I think it's a 10-inch um, record that she recorded in a recording studio when she first came to the U.S. when she was 11 years old, sometime around 19... Um, 1950 is when that was. No, no, that's not true. Uh, 1942 or so. During during the war, she had come over, and there's this record of her playing Scarlatti, which uh, I found behind a bookcase when I was cleaning out her house after she passed away, and took it to the New York Public Library's Performing Arts Division to a conservator to clean up and digitize. So music's been in my family since you know I was in the womb. Uh, I played a number of instruments growing up, piano, flute, guitar, um, played in jazz band, uh, uh, flute, bass and guitar in high school. Um, didn't do that much with performing music in uh, after high school, but now I'm in a band uh, that does classic rock and soul covers. Howie's heard us play. Larry's heard us play. Um, and so music's always been part of my life. I did radio during college. And what's a little bit different about that, a lot of people in the music industry did college radio, but what's a little bit different about my experience is that the station that we had was a commercial station. So we were, we were an older station that uh, came in before the FCC um, 
defined the non-commercial band. And so we actually had to go out and sell ads and we had to produce the ads, which was the one of the things that I did, which I loved, absolutely loved. I was a total production studio rat. I also at one point was in charge of record company relations and I dealt with all of the college radio reps and so on. Uh, I ended up doing radio for many, many years after, but never professionally, always at um, non-commercial uh, well, we're nonprofit type stations, and I'm still involved as a member of the alumni board of my of my college radio station. So um, my background educationally is a little bit like Howie's. I've got degrees in computer science, and you know, to to skip a lot of the unimportant parts of my background, I ended up in New York City after grad school, and ended up working in the publishing industry. I had uh, developed a sideline as a freelance writer. I had written a couple technical books, and I was a columnist for an IT industry magazine for a while, and uh, it ended up being actually an editor for for a tech book um, at one point. And I, I started doing this while I was working at in IT on Wall Street, and I ended up doing IT in the publishing industry. And this was around when the internet was first coming down the pipe and I was put on an industry committee to deal with this problem that everyone saw. There was this new thing called the internet that was gonna come along and destroy our business and what do we do about it? So I was involved in some of the early copyright technology uh, initiatives in the late 90s. And I wrote a book about digital rights management in the year 2001, which is I guess what um, put put me on the radar screen of people like Howie when they were actually in the trenches doing this stuff um, at at, comp at first at at Bell Labs, AT and T, and then at Warner and and so on. Um, Howie and I first crossed paths I think shortly before he took the job at Warner. So we've known each other for for many many years, more than twenty years I would say. And he had brought me in to to Warner uh, to do a couple projects of one sort or another over the years. And it was through his introduction that I got to spend three years at a DSP, a music DSP startup in the late 2000s that uh, it'd be interesting to see if you remember this. It was called Beyond Oblivion. No. Uh, um, oh, okay. Well, you Beyond can Google Oblivion. it. Yeah. Um, th that was not the public name of it. That was just the name sort of of a company. Um, but it, it was, um, you know, it, it didn't succeed, at least not in the U.S. There, there are sort of reincarnations of it that are operational now in different places, such as Southeast Asia and South America. But um, it, it was, let, let's just say it was a little bit too complicated. It did not have a elevator pitch. Um, and it also, the timing-wise, we were doing this stuff just before the Spotify tsunami hit the shores of the United States. And Spotify tended up, tend, ended up taking all, up all the oxygen in the room and there was no room for anyone else uh, in 2011. And, and that's around when Beyond Oblivion um, stopped at, at least for a while before it came back later. And I was also involved later. So I kind of ended up transitioning from publishing into music sort of a, in an ad hoc way. Um, and, and I'd say the transition really became complete a few years ago when Larry Miller, um, whom I had also gotten to know, asked me to come in and teach the undergrad version of this data analysis class that Howie now teaches at, at, in the master's program. 
Uh, and so I, I've kind of cut my ties with the, with the publishing industry from a consulting standpoint. I've run my own consulting firm since the year 2000. And I've worked on a number of projects that have to do with music, mostly in the areas of rights, copyright and things like that. I've worked as an expert witness in copyright litigation. So, so that, that's my background in, in music. Um, and that kind of brings us to where we are now when Howie, you know, three years ago, approached me about this book idea that he had. Wow. <laughs> that lead in really kind of points to something that I really like about the book, which is you guys have such a broad background and the way the book is laid out, obviously we're talking about these uh, disruptive technologies, but you also have, you kind of explain things from something you call the six C framework in the book. And that really plays to your experiences and background. Talk a little bit about how that framework and how you guys thought about laying out the book, because it's super helpful. And, and that's one of the things I noticed immediately was how informative and the different perspectives was really great. The, the book originally, although Bill, given his background in publishing, quickly disabused me of the notion that we should write a textbook um, because nobody does that anymore. <laughs> but in fact, the idea for the book was when I left Warner, I went to Larry uh, Miller at NYU and said, I have an idea for a class. I have an idea for a book to go with it. And he said, that's great. It's going to take you years to do that. Why don't you teach this data class, which I'm glad I said yes to. But that idea had always been in the back of my mind to write a book about the history of technology disruption in the music industry. But I didn't want it to just be chronological. I didn't want it to be this happened and then that happened and then this happened. And in part, that was because there were lots of books that did that, particularly on the more recent eras, uh, the Napster disruption, Appetite for Self-Destruction, some great books. Um, but I wanted some way, and again, I was thinking of this as how would I teach this material to have some common organization, some common approach to every one of these disruptions. Um, it wasn't originally six C's. The struggle was to come up with words that started with C. But the things that always starts with the technology, that multiple technologies have to come together, just like I said earlier, you know, the download business couldn't really take off until there were high speed networks to enable it. It wasn't just that there was an MP3 compression algorithm. You needed other pieces in place. You couldn't have an iPod without a tiny disk drive that could hold 10,000 songs. It just wouldn't work. So there's always a group of technologies that have to coalesce. The C became cutting edge technology. And then once that becomes the mass market way of getting music to fans, um, and there are lots of cases where there were cutting edge technologies that flopped. We mentioned those in the book, but we don't go into great detail. But once the cutting edge technology becomes the mass market thing, the rest of the business has to morph and change. And it's not always in the same order, and we don't tell it in the same order, but it gave us a way to structure every chapter. And those other five Cs are creators, meaning what do artists do to adjust to this new format? How do they record? What do they record? You know, today we see songs getting ever shorter because of the TikTok generation, just to pick one example. We have consumers. I don't love the word, but it starts with C and it's the way we talk about fans. How do you make money with this new format? Because it changes the business models and the agreements. And that's cash is the C for how you make money. 
um, the channels. How do you get the product to people when, you know, CDs replaced vinyl record stores and mass market retailers had to figure out how do they fit this small thing in the racks that used to fit big things without going through the replacement and expense of every storage mechanism that they had in their store. So the channels often change as the formats change. And the last one is copyright. Um, we didn't have to change it to a C. Copyright is the right term, although it also includes regulations, which, you know, as Bill said, he's, you know, neither of us is a lawyer, but he's closer to being a lawyer than I am, given his experience as an expert witness. And so he was able to make sure that those parts of the book that describe the changes and the court cases were correct. And, you know, I'm happy to say that so far, the lawyers that have read the book haven't complained that we got anything wrong. Which is a miracle as far as I'm concerned. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. One of the things that I, I learned, and it was it was so much fun, is as you talk about these disruptions, it's not always about the technology. It's about culture. It's about timing. There are a lot of other variables. Talk a little bit about vinyl and some of the things that you learned, you know, in the late 40s, sort of that post-war economic boom. Talk about that disruption a little bit. Yeah, so the the, uh, the vinyl technology happened in the late 1940s when um, Columbia invented uh, this 12-inch LP format. And at the same time, over at RCA, they had their own version, which was a 7-inch record with a bigger hole in the middle. And what the folks at Columbia wanted to do was to license the technology to everybody else, all the other labels, so that there could be one format, just like there was a 78 format before then. And RCA refused to go along with it initially. They had to have their own thing. So the the music that was put out on LPs included classical and Broadway. You know, those were the main two things. And soon jazz expanded from little three-minute jazz cuts to the full improvisations that the jazz musicians of that era were playing in concerts anyway. And <clears throat> RCA's response was to have a stack of four or five 45s that you had to put on a changer in order to play a concerto or a symphony or a lo- lengthy Miles Davis uh, improvisation, th- things like that, a Broadway show. Uh, eventually, of course, all the labels um, embraced both formats. But what happened in the market was, here we are in the late 40s, early 50s, probably the biggest economic boom in the 20th century in the U.S. And the um, record industry lost a quarter of its value uh, virtually overnight. You know, you talk about this is one of our elevator pitches for the book when we were selling it to publishers. Yes, the the record industry suffered quite a bit under Napster. And there have been all these books about how the record industry was humming along until Napster came along. Well, you know, yes, Napster was very disruptive, but there were also a lot of disruptions that were, if not quite that cataclysmic for the industry, very, uh, very uh, detrimental to revenue and things like that. And this is one of them. So big economic boom, a lot of people going to the suburbs and they, you know, so forth. But um, 25% loss in the record industry because of this bifurcation of formats, format war, you needed to buy new equipment, you know, to play this stuff. You couldn't just play it on your your gizmo that played 78s and the industry didn't recover until this new thing called rock and roll came along 
in the mid-50s, along with top 40 formats that really boosted the popularity of pop music. And that became the natural uh, music for the seven-inch single. And, uh, you know, the, the idea of a single dates back even many decades before then to the Edison Cylinder era. But the idea of a single sort of transmogrified into this seven-inch uh, RCA format was really something that took off in the mid-1950s. And so you had a bifurcation. You've got pop music singles on the one hand, and then you've got Broadway, jazz, classical, et cetera, uh, on your 12-inch LPs. And that's what caused the industry to revive. That plus the um, explosion in the hi-fi component industry at around the same time. So let's also add the, the um, baby boomers who had money to spend and wanted music that was different from their parents. They didn't want Perry Como or Bing Crosby. They wanted rock and roll and having single songs, an A and a B side, on those less expensive 45s gave them uh, a path to ownership for the music that they loved and that helped to fuel that. And, you know, the parents at home said, what is this garbage you're listening to? Which is a speech we've heard many times since. I think all of us heard it from our parents at one point or another. Exactly. Speaking of vinyl, you know, Jay and I have talked about this on our podcast a lot. We were there, we were in the industry as we were shoving vinyl out the door because CDs were coming up and everybody wanted compact discs. Did you, uh, I, I did not see the vinyl resurgence coming back. I, I, it, to me, I still kind of think about it. It's like, wow, I'm still amazed that we are still talking about vinyl. Did you guys foresee that? The, were you surprised that vinyl came back in a way that is pretty unique, basically, in terms of technologies? I didn't see it coming. I have to tell you, I, to be honest about it, um, I love vinyl. I'm glad I held on to most of the vinyl collection that I had amassed over the years, despite my wife's attempts to, you know, try to make me get rid of it because it was taking up so much space in our New York apartment. But um, no, I didn't see it coming there. Obviously, I've, I've actually written. I also write for Forbes and I've written various pieces about vinyl in, in Forbes. And it's really interesting. Vinyl has is kind of stabilizing now at depending on how you measure it 10 to 15 percent of the market and even more if you count used the used vinyl market is not counted by the industry because as you know the artists and the labels don't get any money from the sale of used but um i actually did a study of this a few years ago uh, in an art and and it's in an article i wrote for forbes you can google it and i estimated that the amount of unreported revenue from vinyl sales counting used, meaning indie stores and various used outlets probably equals the amount of, of revenue that the RAA reports for vinyl. So the true amount of money that changes hands around vinyl is probably about double what the RAA reports, which would put it at north of 15% of overall industry revenue. But it's stabilized. It's The growth has kind of tapered off. But, you know, that suggests that at least for the short to medium term, it's here to stay. And, you know, the reason why people consume vinyl today, the, those reasons are a little bit different from the reasons why people consume vinyl in the 60s, 70s and so on, when it was really the only game in town. Yeah. Unless you count cassettes. Yeah. 
One of the game changers for me was uh, in high school uh, with that, uh, that Walkman. It just changed everything. Instead of sitting in my front room with these big cans on, you know, kind of tied to that stereo, um, I could ride my bike and listen to music. And it was, I, I can't even describe how amazing that was. Talk about that shift a little bit uh, with, uh, with the Walkman and with cassettes. Sure. Well, well, um, cause the, the whole tape cartridge phenomenon was an attempt to enable music on demand on the go. So there were a couple of attempts to make record players that worked in cars, and those were miserable failures, as you can <laughs> very easily imagine. But there was, there was, you know, everyone understood that if you had music on demand that didn't require you to sit in the living room or bed, even a bedroom, that would have been a huge expansion opportunity for the market. And so reel-to-reel tape was actually a commercial format in the 50s, 60s, not a very big one, and mostly adopted by audiophiles who listen to classical or jazz, let's say. And the first tape cartridge formats came along in the 1950s, but they were only really used in, in situations like radio stations. So there's actually, I, I don't have it at, at my hand right now, but in the other room, I've got a couple of what we called carts, Fidelipak carts that you would use in a radio station, which look similar to eight. And so you're going to reach for one now or no, I thought you were going to, I thought you were going to reach for one. Well, they, you know, if anyone's seen eight tracks, they look a little bit like eight tracks. Yeah. So in the mid sixties, there was someone named Earl Muntz, who was a car dealer in Southern California who worked in radio and he saw immediately, Oh, here's the way to get music on demand in cars. And so he went into business buying up lots of blank cartridges and getting licenses to record music on them and distributing them. And the Fidelipak stereo four format was a commercially viable format for a few years. Then this other guy came in named Bill Lear as in Learjet. And he was making these private aircraft planes and decided this would be a great way to enable music to be played on, on the airplanes. And so he took the idea and made some changes so that for, you know, among other things, he wouldn't have to pay patent licensing fees to the people who came up with, with a Fidelipak format and create and created what's what we now know as the eight track it was originally called the stereo eight format. Um, and the cassette had been in existence during that time, but it was really only conceived of as a pocketable voice dictation kind of medium. It wasn't really considered to be a serious music format, certainly not by Phillips who invented it, Lou Ottens and Phillips who also co-invented the CD uh, later on, great uh, designer, industrial designer, kind of the Johnny Ive of his time, if, if you will, although it's maybe the other way around. And so <laughs> in the seventies, what started to happen was people liked cassettes because they were really small, really easy to carry around, easy to store, um, and you could fast forward and rewind, which you couldn't do with eight tracks. All you could do was push a button to go to the next track. And so the, this sort of was a, a motivation to make it sound better. So there were two, and Tally was talking about there have to be a number of technologies that sort of come together to create a new format. And this is a really good example, how he gave, gave his example. And so this is another example of that. Um, so cassettes needed to sound better. 
And one, one way to do that was to increase the quality of the actual physical tape on which it's recorded. So DuPont in Delaware created this formulation called chromium dioxide, which we all know now, which improved the especially treble response of the tapes. And then this guy out in California, Ray Dalby, created a way to cut hiss and noise. And those two were available to increase the sound quality of cassettes. And there was a third guy, a guy named Henry Kloss, who is well known to hi-fi aficionados as the inventor of the Advent speaker, among other things. And he created the first ever cassette deck that took advantage of both of these technologies at once and was really the first high fidelity cassette deck. And this came out in the early 70s. Howie actually had one of those Advent 201 model cassette decks. I had the Advent speakers. He had the cassette deck. So that product's availability kind of gave the gave everyone the idea, oh, cassettes can be really good sounding and we can record them at home. So the home recording aspect was something else that we could talk about maybe later. But this was all of a sudden the change that was needed to make cassettes into a serious music format. And so what you saw, if you look at industry revenue, the RAAA's industry revenue numbers year to year, which we show in the book, you see that through the 70s, cassettes grew and grew in revenue, eight tracks tapered off. Um, they weren't as convenient a product. Not much effort was put into making eight tracks sound better, although that could have happened, it didn't, not really. And so cassettes for a small period of time from I believe the late seventies through early eighties were the number or maybe even mid eighties were the number one format for commercial music distribution overtaking LPs. And then, of course, the CD came along and went way higher than cassettes. But there was a, a period of a few years when cassettes were the ruling format. And the Walkman was one of, of two devices that what represented, as you say, another big expansion of the availability of recorded music in, you know, throughout people's days, so, so to speak, during the waking hours of, of, of people's lives. The other one was the boombox which came around arguably a little earlier than the Walkman, but the Walkman was a private listening experience that Sony, uh, Ibuka-san at, uh, t at Sony uh, conceived of. And so, yes, uh, and I remember being on the radio in college when that product came out and we were, there was a record label that had a promotion. We were given one to give out on the air, which was very, very exciting to see that thing at the time. Yeah, it is worth noting, though, that it wasn't necessarily conceived as private. The first version that Sony issued had two headphone jacks. They thought people would listen with their friends. Pretty soon it went down to just one jack. Yeah, for sure. That's uh, right. There were so many great stories in this. I'm wondering what you guys each, if there was something that, that completely surprised you during your research uh, of, of any given topic in the book, because I'm sure you knew a lot of the top level stuff, but as you researched and got lower and lower, what, what kind of surprised you? What things did you learn in this process? This was not a surprise to me, but what I have found interesting is that, um, you know, there's a lot of interest in the book from people in the industry and how few people understand the origination of some terms, right? And, you know, the one that comes up most frequently, and this is, you know, people have been in the industry 30 years that I've talked to say, oh, Howie, I didn't know that. And that has to do with the term record label. 
right? And so we all know, right, visual aid, you know, there's a 78 disc and the label's in the middle. And everybody says, well, the term label comes from the thing that sits in the middle. And it says the name of the company that issued it. And what a great place to put the name of the song and the songwriter and the length of the track and all of that. And that's true. And that's why we call it a record label. But the reason that there is a record label is something that surprises most people. And the reason that there is a record label is that you know, when you put a disc on a turntable, the turntable turns at a constant speed, which means that the length of time it takes to go 360 degrees at the outer edge of the record is longer than the length of time it takes to go around the record in the groove as you get to the middle. And what the people who first made discs discovered is that particularly when there was loud music or um, sounds that they were recording, as you got closer and closer to the middle, the needle would jump out of the groove. How do you stop that? Well, don't let the needle get to the middle of the disc. And they stopped it by putting a piece of paper. And that became a logical place to put that, what we would today call metadata. Um, <laughs> and that was far superior to the labels that were on, cylinder, on cylinders, which were part of the reason Discs were more convenient, they were easier to use, they were easier to store. But it is surprising to me how many people know, well, yes, I work for a record label, Bill and I gave a talk at Warner Music, and this is one of the stories that we told. Everybody knows they work for a label, but they don't realize that the technology of the product design and the limitations of the product led directly to the fact that they work at a company that's known as a record label. That is amazing. I love that. You know, the music industry sort of has this track record of trying to kill off new technologies, but all of these technologies, it seems from your book, once they are sort of adopted, they help the industry grow. Um, what did you sort of learn about that? And have we learned our lesson? Well, you know, as someone who uh, has worked in in you know a media industry mostly in publishing where I was you know I had line positions. There's an immovable object that you have to get around, which is middle management's annual bonus. <laughs> and whenever you know, so Howie has talked about the innovators' dilemma, which which is a firm. Uh, sorry, a term coined by a Harvard Business School professor named Clayton Christensen. It's the name of his first famous book, one of a series of really interesting books by him. And it's, you know, if you're making a lot of money from one thing, then it's hard to change course to something that's maybe going to make money for you later. But what I found um, as, as a much more down-to-earth or practical consideration is the top executives may even say, we need to do this because we know it's the next thing, but it's the layer below them that say, you know, not, not if it means my bonus is going to be cut in half next quarter or next year. So, <laughs> you know, the, the, the magic formula for how do you get around this, I think is remains elusive, but I think the industry is getting better at it. So if you see, for example, the, some of the attitudes around AI, for example, if you get, if, you know, t talking specifically and how we can talk about other aspects of this, talking about the, the copyright side, I think that there is a lot more engagement 
with the AI tech community on how do we figure this out together, this copyright business and licensing business. And yes, there are lawsuits. There will be more lawsuits. There will be antagonism. There will be adversarial behavior. But there's also a lot more like, okay, how do we sit down together and figure this out, which did not exist previously, um, certainly during the, the Napster uh, period. So, I, I, you know, people are trying, but it's tough. Yeah, I think that it is the case, and it isn't just true for the music industry. That, you know, there's an implication in the statement that the music industry is dumber than other industries and has a tougher time dealing with new technologies than other industries. I, I tend to disagree with that. I think all industries have difficulty in moving to the next thing, right? Our friend, mutual friend, Will Page, right, wrote Tarzan Economics, which comes from a term that we all know, Jim Griffin, another <laughs> friend, says, you know, you have to let go of the current vine to swing to the next vine. And the truth is that unless you see the current vine start to fray, it's harder to make that leap to the new vine. And in the past, whether it was MTV, where record labels in some cases didn't want to give their videos to MTV to play, um, in part because MTV didn't want to pay at the beginning. They were free and promotional. And there were, you know, executives who said, we're not giving you our friggin' videos for nothing. But he didn't say friggin', but um, <laughs> you, you could figure out what he this said. It's a family Other podcast. Yeah. <laughs> That's a family podcast. So, um, you know, so th that occurred, right? And And when the CD came around, as much as it drove the industry to unsurpassed heights in, you know, total revenue of that era um, with everybody rebuying things. At first, you know, Sony had to put together a team of people to market it to the labels to adopt this, that they didn't see the value in it um, at first. And it wasn't the thing why vinyl was still doing a great business. And those record stores didn't want to carry CDs. We were already carrying tapes and we're carrying vinyl and now you want us to carry cds too this is a pain in the ass to be blunt about it mm -hmm. is the answer that they got so this happened time and again what occurred every time though was that the industry started to suffer somewhat right the the in the mtv era there was a drop in revenues there was a slump in the industry and suddenly it became well lead let's go give it a try because we're suffering financially and i think the fact that today there is far better understanding of the underlying economics of streaming from the record label and the publisher perspective, from the growth in the developed market versus the emerging markets. And I think the industry sees the growth of streaming slowing in countries like the US and in the Nordics, even though there is substantial growth and huge opportunities whether it's in China or in Malaysia or in the Middle East, um, where you could look every week, it seems the major labels are making the new deal in some emerging market around the world yeah. to add to the repertoire in Africa that they can provide to African consumers who may love Bad Bunny and Taylor Swift, but also want the music that they know in their own culture, in their own community. So that understanding of the weakness of the market, even though at the top line, the industry is still doing well, I think is what's different today than in the past. But what it puts it in common with, oh, wait, there's some you know, financial headwinds coming 
that means we better figure out the next thing. And I think that's part of the reason you're seeing the movement in AI that perhaps we didn't see quite as quickly in the past when new formats and new major disruptions came around. Before we let you go, I have a comment and a question. The the comment is there's only a handful of books that I think everybody in the music industry you just have to have, you know, the Donald Passman book. There's just, there's a, a handful of those. And I really believe that what you guys have written is on that list. I don't think anybody in the music industry should, well, you need to read this for a couple of reasons. One is I love the way you laid out the history. Like how did we get to where we are? But then to give all of that information, I just think you guys did such a great job. And before we let you go, I'm really curious. Thank you. you, you your class, data analysis in the music industry, what what are you teaching your students? Um, there's really two, two parts to the class. Um, and again, Bill teaches the undergraduate level. I teach the graduate level. And I really have to give a lot of the credit for the course to um, Alex White, who was one of the founders of Next Big Sound. And he was entrepreneur in residence at NYU. And in some sense, the syllabus that Bill and I use, and we've each made changes, we've created new assignments, we've updated the class, but in some sense, the concept for the class was was Alex's, so I have to give him kudos for that, um, was to do two things. Not to teach our students to be data scientists, although I think Bill and I each had students come into the class from the computer science department or the Stern School, and there are people that do go out of NYU and become data scientists, but it's to teach data literacy. How do you use the tools? How do you use chart metric? How do you use Luminate? How do you use hit songs deconstructed? Because when they go apply for their job, whether they want to be an A&R person or they want to work in the services business that provides uh, e-commerce services for artists or you know marketing to for new artists on new tech platforms at Atlantic Records, you need to be looking at the numbers. There's nothing that happens in the industry today that doesn't look at the numbers. So data literacy is critical. So, you know, we teach some tools. How do you do, in my class, how do you do predictive models? How do you do regression analysis? When are the right, when do you do a cluster analysis versus other things? We use the Spotify API to grab data about artists and songs into a Google worksheet right? So that you can look every day and see how many followers did I gain yesterday. Um, And so we're teaching them those basics. And then the other, I'd say third of the class for me, are guest speakers from the industry. And the first question to those guest speakers, whether they're from Spotify or from Live Nation, or it's an independent artist, is how did you get familiar with data? How did you get this job in data? And what tools do you use and how, what roles does data play in your job in the business? Uh, you know, whether that's figuring out which brand should work with which artist or how do you figure out how much money an artist ends up with at the end of the month from Spotify? Yeah, and for me in the undergrad class, um, it, it's a little bit different. A lot of my students are in the music business program, which means that they're musicians to begin with because it's a music degree program. That's going to change in the near future, but that's the way it is for now. And so at least half the class is going to, they're going to be instrumentalists or singer songwriters or whatever. And they're looking to kind of move into the business or, you know, to get a day job essentially. And 
um, the, the skill that I tried to cultivate in addition to everything that Howie said is how to present data to management so that they get it. So I'm very big on data viz, data visualization. Um, how do you show data in a way that makes it so that whoever's looking at your presentation just gets it immediately? Uh, and doesn't have to go, what, or, you know, what are those numbers? What do they mean? Let me see the backup detail. You know, in the ideal world, the backup detail exists, but whoever is looking at it shouldn't really have to see it in order to understand what it's about. So we spend a lot of time on presentation, a lot of time on data viz, in addition to the analytic skills that, that Howie was talking about. And this is also very important for getting a job. Right. And then the other thing that I do, which is a little bit idiosyncratic, but it's sort of a function of my background, is I focus on rights and royalties data for one unit in the semester. And I went went to Larry Miller, you know, should I be dealing with this in my class or not? Or would you rather just focus on things like streaming and social media and, you know, marketing and all the other stuff that, that we deal with? And he said, no, no, you know, they're not learning it anywhere else. They might as well learn it with you. And so there's a handful of students who have gone and gotten jobs that are about rights and royalties data at places like Primary Wave, for example. And they, they come back and they tell me, you know, your class was the most useful class I took at NYU because of what I'm doing in my job now. Mm. And this is these are the skills that companies in the industry ranging from major labels all the way through startups and indie labels say they need and so that's what we're trying to do with our class and i and i would like to finally mention that howie and i are also starting a class based on the book uh this coming semester a class is called technological transformation of the music industry fantastic gentlemen yeah. thank you so much for joining us it's such an honor we love your book uh let's thank keep you in touch. so much we we really appreciate your time we appreciate the support and having us and your very kind words, you know, that if, if we could very aspire to get on the shelves of people <laughs> next to that Passman book, that would be a great thing. Oh, yeah. That's it's a must read. It's a must read if you're in the industry, without a yeah. doubt. Yeah. Thanks. thanks again. Thanks again, guys. Really appreciate it. You've been listening to Your Morning Coffee, the weekly music news program for the new music business. Join Jay Gilbert and Mike Etchard next time for the digital music news you need to know.